So there's a couple, Dale and Sandy, and they go out to dinner with some friends. And while they're sitting at dinner, Sandy sort of casually mentions she has a meeting on Saturday night. And Dale thinks to himself, why didn't she bother to tell me about that meeting? I didn't know about that till now. He gets a little ticked. He gets a little feeling of rejection inside. Like, you know, maybe perhaps in reality she had mentioned it in passing to him and he didn't remember that in the moment, but right there at the dinner, he's feeling a little rejected. He's feeling a little hurt that he didn't know about the Saturday night plans that she has. And so he makes a decision in that moment. He goes, I'll show her. It's like a voice inside, sort of like a an immature, pouting, Scandinavian voice inside of him says, you can get back at her about this. So he sort of stiffens up a little. He moves away. He makes sure there is absolutely no part of his body touching any part of her body. He sort of starts to like look at her less and look at their friends more. He starts to engage with the friends. I mean, nothing so overt that everybody at the table knows, but enough that she will know he has turned cold and cool towards her. Anybody ever done this? <laughs> ever get a little cold, a little hurt, and uh, cut somebody off? Well, right there in the dinner, right among friends, Dale starts to realize what's going on. And a different voice inside of him, a more mature voice, says, you are not really being your best self right now. And so, right there at the table, he reaches over and grabs Sandy's hand. He gives her a smile. He uh, shows a little warmth. And then under the table, where no one else can see, her foot moves over to his foot and gives it a little nudge. And he knows in that moment what her foot is saying. It is saying to him, it's okay. We'll talk about this when we get home. Like, I'm sad that I won't be with you Saturday either, but I love you and I'm happy to be married to you. Because, you know, feet can be very expressive like that when they want to be. <laughs> and uh, that tiny shift, that repair in the relationship, that moment, we've all experienced it, is a moment when your thoughts turn from like a hostility to a humility. I'm not being my best self right now. When your emotions turn from like irritation with the other to affection for the other, when your intention turns from wanting to inflict pain, even in a small, subtle way, that's not real obvious to everyone, it turns from wanting to inflict pain to wanting to connect. That is a little spiritual force that God has given to us, and it is called peace. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I want to talk about practicing peace. I want, to talk, uh, I want to suggest today that perhaps the opposite of peace is hostility. Now, when I say hostility, that sounds like a very dramatic word, but let's think about it on a continuum, right? Like hostility, small h, to hostility with a capital H. It can come in all forms, like the simple dinner with Dale and Sandy. But hostility is increasing in our world today. Yet when God looks at the heart, what happens in our hearts and in our minds matters to God. And uh, you can engage in this little spiritual force called peace. You can engage in it personally. You can engage in it relationally. You can engage in it civically. 
politically. You can engage in it systemically. You can actually be a person who is fighting for justice while engaging in peacemaking. And if our world needs anything at all right now, it needs more people of peace. So today, the second Sunday of Advent, we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about peace, hostility, and a woman named Tamar. So peace, first of all, it is so central to the Christmas story, the message of Christmas. When the angels appeared to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth, the song that they sang to the flocks and to their keepers was this, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, that promise of peace, it sounds good to our ears, but we have to ask the question, what kind of peace were the angels talking about? Because peace means different things to different ears, right? To a soldier, peace means the end of war. To a refugee, peace means a return home. To a family that's in turmoil, peace may simply mean a calm dinner together. So what does the Christmas news of peace truly mean? Author J.I. Packer says this as a great definition of biblical peace. He says this, the peace of God is first and foremost peace with God. It's the state of affairs in which God, instead of being against us, is for us. Primarily and fundamentally, it's a new relationship of forgiveness and acceptance. It's a little spiritual force invented by God, and it's called peace. You can have it with God, and you can have the peace of God, and practice peace or pursue peace in our conflicted world today. You can actually become a person of peace. See, peace is not just an idea. Peace is also a practice. We can have peace with God because of what Christ has done, and we can experience the peace of God and extend that peace to others. That's the part that we practice. Ephesians 2 says this about Jesus himself. He himself is our peace who has made the two one and has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. See, in conflict, walls go up, lines get drawn, hostility enters our hearts. In conflict, human beings who are made in the image of God begin to treat one another like the other. Not like sacred image bearers that we are, but like an it. In conflict, I say to myself, I'm better than you. And I look down on others as less than me. I look down on the person who doesn't look like me, think like me, vote like me, faith like me. So when we're practicing peace and reconciliation, the opposite happens Barriers come down. People who were estranged and divided get reunited. The hostility and the woundedness inside, they get replaced with healing and goodwill towards one another. In the Old Testament, the Old 
uh, prophets of Israel, they longed for peace. And they would speak about peace not just among human beings, but among all of creation. The prophet Isaiah was talking about the coming Messiah and says it like this. It will look like this. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. No hostility, no pain, no conflict, and a little child, a powerless child, will lead them. When we just imagine peace on a grand scale in our world today, we think of things like, what would it be like if North Korea and South Korea were to live together at one in peace? What would it look like for Israelis and Palestinians to live together in harmony? In our own country, what would it look like if the wounds of 250 years of slavery and another 100 years of Jim Crow laws and lynchings were to be healed? Between now and the first of the year, what would it look like for Republicans and Democrats to engage in civil dialogue? Or, on a personal level, we imagine the friend who has been married and the marriage has been estranged for a long time, so much so that, like, when they're lying in bed, if his foot will happen to touch her leg, she will reflexively, physically just pull away. That is how distant they are. And it is that reminder that feet can say a lot when they want. (laughs) And it is also that reminder that it's a broken relationship. There is a lack of peace. There is a hostility. So when we imagine peace, we imagine a marriage like that getting healed. Visions for peace They really capture our hearts because division hurts our hearts so much. And way too often, even within religious communities, even among followers of Jesus, even in spiritual uh, communities, often people become more, it's, it's like one more place for divisive factions people trying to power up, different groups. Every generation has new markers for like who's in and who's out of this club. And that is why, spiritually, socially, systemically, the crying need for our world is a cry for peace. It's a cry to be reconciled. And we cannot seem to do it, but it is actually at the heart of the Christmas story. It's right there. The Apostle Paul wrote to this little church in Corinth once and said this, God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Paul's saying if you're a follower of God in the way of Jesus, you have the ministry of reconciliation. You are called to wage peace in the world to be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper, but a peacemaker. Jesus himself said, blessed are the peacemakers. And here's why this is so important, especially at this time of year. I think the best part about 
the holiday season is that it's a time when we get together with family. And I think the hardest part about the holiday season is that it is a time when we get together with family. And in every family, there seems to be a person with issues, right? (laughs) And those issues tend to disrupt the peace. Now, if you think your family has some issues, I just want to give you a quick summary of the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. Uh, The very first book in the Bible starts like this. Uh, There is a brother Cain. He kills his brother Abel. A couple generations after that, a guy Lamech comes along. He is a polygamist and a murderer. Then Noah gets drunk. His family's a total train wreck. Abraham impregnated his wife's maid. Jacob deceived his father, stole his twin brother's inheritance. Uh, Jacob had 12 sons by two wives and two maids. He favored one of them, remember Joseph and the coat. And so the brothers of Joseph kidnap him, and they uh, consider killing him, but then they decide to sell him. And then they cover his robe in goat's blood to make their dad think that Joseph has uh, been dead already. So, like, these are the families in the Bible. In other words, you can sit up straight and tall. Your family is doing great. (laughs) And right in the middle of all this dysfunction comes a story that I want us to look at today. Um, It is a story about hostility and peace. It is a story that uh, at the outset, you will not think it is a Christmas story, but it is a Christmas story. I promise you, it's a really weird story. I know it's a weird story, but it's a Christmas story. You just have to stick around long enough, um, get through all the weirdness till we get to the end. Okay, here's the story. Genesis chapter 38, um, there is a man named Judah. Conventionally, religious people uh, do not tend to want to talk about this story publicly, so I thought to help that, we would tell it with some stuffed animals. So, um, have to just go with me on this. This is going to be Judah today, and the Bible says that Judah left his brothers and went down to Adullam and married a Canaanite woman. Okay, so this is Judah, this is his wife. We actually never get her name, um, but she's in the story. So this is Judah, this is his Canaanite wife. Now, the first thing that you are going to notice in this story is this. To an ancient Israelite reader, immediately, this story means trouble. And this is why. In that day, to leave your brother, you didn't do that. So that meant there was conflict. That meant there was family tension. That meant there was hostility they would immediately understand there is a broken family dynamic going on here. There's conflict. And then he marries a Canaanite woman. What that meant is if you were an Israelite, in other words, if you were a descendant of Abraham, you were choosing idolatry and unfaithfulness to marry a Canaanite woman. So Judah is going down a Very bad road right from the start, and everybody reading it first sentence would understand that. Now, Judah and his wife have three sons. Ur, this is going to be Ur, Onan, and the littlest little pumpkin, Shelah. So these are the three sons, okay? So here's Judah, his wife, three sons, Ur, Onan, and uh, Shelah. So Judah 
the Bible says, goes and gets a wife for his firstborn son. And this wife's name is Tamar. Everybody want to say, hello, Tamar. <laughs> Welcome to kindergarten class. <laughs> so, uh, so he gets this wife, Tamar, for his eldest son, his firstborn son. But the scriptures say that Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord put him to death, okay? He's gone. He's out of the story. Ur is gone. And so then Judah's responsibility in the ancient world is if a woman's husband died, this is how it went, her father-in-law, Judah, is obligated to have her marry the next oldest, okay? Next oldest? What's his name? Onan, okay? So she is now obligated to marry Onan. But here's the thing. Onan presumably already has a wife or more polygamous culture and children. By marrying Tamar, if they have a family together, then the, ch the child of that family will receive the inheritance. So his first family will be out. And so Onan um, marries her, but he's aware of the financial loss, and so he figures out a way that he can cheat Tamar and shame her with barrenness and get away with it. Okay, this is in the Bible. Genesis chapter 38, verse 8. This is what the scriptures say. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. This is in the Bible, and this is a Christmas story. You can read it to the kids. <laughs> like if they're 20. Okay, so to the ancient reader, Tamar would be a tragic victim. Like, to, in the ancient world, they would read this, and they would feel for her that she's the tragic victim in this story. Um, even though Tamar is a Canaanite pagan idolatress, she wants to be a part of the story of the people of God. She wants to be a part of the story of the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. And she was devoting herself, this Canaanite woman was devoting herself to be the mother of the people of God. And yet, she had been given to not one but two wicked, two men of great wickedness, and both of them died, and she is still barren. And so Judah, her father-in-law, at this point, everybody knows what his obligation is, right? It's for Tamar to marry her, his third son, Selah. But what Judah says to Tamar is he says, why don't you go back with your family and we will raise little Shelah and when he's old enough, we will call for you and you can come, you can marry him and have children with him. But secretly, Judah says, no way am I doing that. I'm for sure not calling for you. Like I have already lost two sons. And so he leaves Tamar to wither and to die. 
Now, after some period of time, the scriptures say uh, that Judah's wife dies. Okay? So now she's out of the story. And Judah does not spend very much time mourning her death. He, um, he gets right around to dating. Uh, he's not really a, like a Christian mingle guy. He is much more of a Tinder guy, like a swipe right guy, like a hookup guy. So in that day, that meant you travel down to a town called Timnah. Okay, when Tamar hears that Judah is going to Tim- Timnah, she, this Canaanite woman, moves into action. And what she does is she puts a veil over her face, she disguises herself. Um, it is, she basically disguises herself as a prostitute. She uh, makes it so she cannot be recognized. And Judah comes and he propositions her and offers to pay uh, her a young goat from his flock. But she says she will ha- he, that he will have to also give his seal and his cord and his staff as collateral. This would sort of be in our day like saying, I need your credit card up front. Okay, that's what she's saying. She's getting collateral from him. So he gives those things. He says, okay, they sleep together, and he doesn't know it, but she becomes pregnant by the father of her first two husbands. Remember, this is a Christmas story, but like how messed up is this? Again, your family's doing awesome, like, because <laughs> this is in the Bible. Judah, um, he... He comes home, he attempts to FedEx her the goat, but no one can find this prostitute. No one can find this prostitute on the side of the road. So he says, forget it. I don't want word to get out that I slept with a prostitute anyway, so just, let, I don't want to be the laughingstock in everybody's eyes, never mind. Several months pass, and Judah hears that Tamar is walking around in widow maternity clothes. He hears that she is pregnant. But, of course, he does not know by whom. He has no idea who the father is. But it is up to him, as the father-in-law, it is up to him to figure out how to respond to the situation, like what to do about this. And so in Genesis 38, verse 24, this is what he says. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Even in the ancient world, That is incredibly brutal. The Hebrew is something like bring, burn. Incredibly brutal. They bring her. But just when they're getting ready to light that match, she sends the seal, the cord, and the staff to Judah with a message. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. Ring a bell, Dad? And Judah is forced to face his sin, his brokenness, and his treachery. And do you know what he says in that moment? She is more righteous than I. It's a moment of turn. God begins to do this work in him. And they call off the execution. And Tamar lives. And she gives birth to twins. And Tamar, the rejected Canaanite girl, gets to be the mother of Israel. 
she gets to be a part of God's great adventure after all. And so I guess, like the moral of the story is, that, you know, if you're a woman and your first husband dies and uh, from wickedness and you marry his brother and then he refuses to impregnate you and he dies and then you should marry your father-in-law after the mother dies and then become a prostitute and trick your father-in-law and Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> like, what a weird story, right? So weird. So weird. Like, how did this get in the Bible? Religious people get a little squeamish, like reading this in public, because, I mean, come on, couldn't Tamar have found, like, a better way to go about things? Couldn't she have, like, learned some computer coding or sold essential oils or (laughs) driven for Uber or something? The Bible doesn't explain all that. It doesn't say. Like, the ancient world, we have to understand, the ancient world was a very brutal place, as is our world These people are complex characters, multifaceted. Their actions are often ambiguous. We kind of have to puzzle things out. We have to remember when we're reading the Bible, it is written across different cultures and time periods in different languages. We have to understand there is polygamy and patriarchy present in the story. And yet, despite all that, The messed up nature of human choices, the evil that is present, the conflict, the hostility, the major character in this story, the major character, the one that we really want to pay attention to is God. And God has not forgotten about little Tamar. And God is intent on bringing about his plan for peace. And bringing about his plan for peace in a conflicted, messed up situation. Because God wants more than anything to have a people to be with. He wants all kinds of people to be included. He wants all kinds of people, all kinds of people who everybody else thinks should be left out. He wants to make a way for people to be at peace with God and to experience the peace of God and to extend that peace to one another, even to wicked old Judah. So Judah, you know, he recognizes when he sees the seal and the cord and the staff, and he says, you know, she is more righteous than I, and that's it. There's that little spiritual force called peace. Right there, his hostility turns to humility. His desire to inflict pain, bring her and burn her, turns to a desire to connect. And that is the beginning of like a little glimmer of hope, a little glimmer of humanity in Judah. Now, Tamar gives birth to twins, and we wonder, like, what happens to her? What happens to the twins? What's interesting is in the book of Genesis, we don't hear anything else about her. Tamar does show up again in the Bible about 1,000 years later, give or take. The New Testament begins with these words. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Sarah, whose mother was Tamar. 
Seriously, Matthew, you're going to bring up that story? That story is how you're going to start this? I mean, you're going to talk about Tamar, and you didn't mention the other mothers up above. Like, you didn't say who Isaac's mom was or who Jacob's mother was. Very odd. Genealogies were a very big deal in the ancient world. Like, we read genealogies, and we're sort of like yawning. But we have to understand that ancient people memorized these. They passed them down from generation to generation. It was like an action movie to them. It told you your, your story, your tribe, your history, your people. Genealogies were a very big deal. It told you, you know, we're somebody. We're a people. We have a story. And Hebrew genealogies did not include women. This one does. Not just a woman, but a woman who tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her. She's in the family tree of the Messiah. Not just that, she's a Canaanite woman. Now, Hebrew people would have read that, and they would have said, she's not one of us. She's not an Israelite, which means from an Israelite perspective at that time, Jesus isn't a pure-blooded our guy. He's like their guy. And Tamar is actually not the only woman mentioned in this genealogy. I mean, Matthew includes a woman named Ruth, also not an Israelite. Not only is she a woman, she's a Moabite woman. He includes a mention of Bathsheba, which you might remember David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He includes another woman named Rahab, not just a Gentile woman, but a Gentile prostitute. It is almost like Matthew is combing through the Old Testament, and he's like, let's find the most disreputable characters that we can find, put them in the genealogy, the names that will tick off the most people, let's include them in the story. Now, why would Matthew do that? It's because the time is coming when Jesus will come to proclaim the gospel, and it is a gospel of peace. Ephesians says he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. It's peace for everybody everybody's welcome. Like all those lines that you are drawing, God is erasing them in Jesus. God is reconciling the world to, him in, to himself in Christ. He's throwing wide open the gates of heaven to any and all who will come. So outsiders aren't left outside anymore, and sinners and saints get all jumbled up together, and grace starts flowing, and it's flowing so heavily that Judah and Tamar are together again. In Matthew, God, in Jesus, is bringing peace. And I think there is a message in there for you and for me in our world today. Because, yeah, our world is a mess too. And God loves this world. And the message we find in the manger is twofold, right? You can have peace with God and 
you can experience the peace of God and practice peace, pursue peace in a conflicted world. Because if God can reconcile Israelite and Canaanite, Judah and Tamar, saints and sinners and prostitutes and patriarchs, oppressors and the oppressed, like who lies outside of the reconciling power of God in Christ? Nobody. Because it turns out Tamar's story, it's a Christmas story. It's a part of Jesus' story. It's the story of the most unlikely people coming in. And so the next time you get in conflict or you just sense that hostility rising up in your head and in your heart, the next time you're tempted to just start drawing lines in the sand, getting a little bit superior, vilifying the other, even if that is just in your head as you read the news, would you take the invitation to practice peace? To remember Tamar right there at the manger, right there next to the Christ child, right there listening to the angels sing, peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Like pursuing peace, it's first about recognizing that energy of hostility that exists in our hearts and our minds. And that is the air we breathe in the world right now. It is first, pursuing peace is first about recognizing that hostility. And then it is about being filled with the spirit of Christ who is our peace. So my prayer for us this next month is may you experience the peace of Christ and may you extend that peace to another. May you choose to live quietly enough and simply enough this month that you might be able to hear the old story afresh, anew. You know, the story of a star and a manger and a baby who has come to bring peace. Let's pray together as we close. I want to give you just a moment in this busy season to just be quiet, to just pause, to just foster the peace of God available to you in Christ. God, we thank you that you are our peace. We thank you that you are a father who loves us. And though it's often hard for us to see at times, there's nobody you don't love. There's nobody you don't want. There's nobody you don't choose. Thank you, God, for the great story of Jesus, for this list of names that goes on and on and on of all these unlikely people who get folded into your family. 
that gets to include us. And in gratitude and in worship, we give you our hearts. We give you our worship. You are our peace. We, we love you, God. We want to know you. We want to tell you that we love you. And we want to hear your words of love right back into our souls. We pray in this season that we might practice peace. The peace that is available in Christ because you are our peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.